Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. It's a wonderful honour and pleasure to be here today and may peace be upon all of our listeners here in the UK, across the world, who tune in and listen to the Drive Time Show regularly Monday to Friday, 4 till 6. And we've got two fantastic programmes to discuss with you today in the first hour. We will be touching on things like... The NHS uh, has the underfunding of the NHS led to deaths of Brits and that Mm -hmm. will delve into that a lot more detail. And in the second hour, we will be talking about peace, stability and how that's all done and how that all makes sense through through uh, justice and through international means as well the key to peace and harmony in justice. So, look, we're going to be talking about that. Looking forward to it. We've got lots of guests in in the first hour and in the second hour we've got a pre-record interview which is fantastic. Uh, you guys should tune into that. And then we have a clip from His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed who is the head of the Worldwide Ahmadiyya Community uh, talking about justice and how they can achieve peace as well through all of that. And as always, we do have a question on our Instagram as well we're asking and this kind of relates to our first hour program but you can keep replying to it to the end of the hour but we will give you the results Um, and that is now will the NHS remain free at the point of use is is Mm. there still a stomach for it so to talk all about that it's myself and and I've got Dalib and Dalib thank you very (laughs) much for allowing me to be with you today I don't allow anyone to be with me it's it's always a a pleasure Uh, never a chore uh, to be in the studio with you, Hanif, uh, because I know currently you're you know you're very very busy. Well, like all of us, right? We're True. all very busy, and f- for me personally, looking at this topic, I just hope no one in my family. No one's close to me fall ill in any right, way. True. Well, anybody actually. Yeah, this is as well. Yeah, exactly right. Just so let's just not bring it just to myself. Let's have that distributive justice that we'll be talking about well, in the second hour true, as true, well. True, true, true uh, that. So when we look at the current news, we've seen loads, haven't we, on the news, and there's been so many strikes as well occurring because of the suffering and the underinvestment of the NHS, and it's becoming significantly as an institution, it's becoming weaker. And even studies have been showing that this has led to the many Britons agonisers fatal diseases such as cancer, right? Mm. I'll, I'll let you just explain I that mean, in more just, detail as I well. Mean, yeah, if we, if we look at it, you, some factors, say for instance, um, which maybe kind of mask the underlying situation of the NHS, and you know, one huge factor... Uh, which affected us globally was COVID nineteen, yeah. right? Yeah. So, in in a sense, it's these unregistered or not unregistered, but these um, collateral deaths that you have. And you know, despite these strikes being carried out uh, to raise awareness about these uh, detriments, uh, yeah, this change is yet to take place. Uh, now, in today's show, we're going to be discussing uh, how underfunding. Uh, has or could lead to the premature death and what effect, uh, you know, the consequent strikes can have on this problem. Um, as we are yeah. well aware currently, you know, we've got the junior doctor's strike. Um, the NHS has, be, has been beset by uh, a multitude of strikes through the nurses. Uh, and some say, uh, you know, even the government has taken the extreme measure to restrict uh, one's ability to strike. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when you sense. look at 
trade unions um, across the country, for them now to be able to have a legitimate strike Mm -hmm. when they ballot, it has to have a significant number of those who say, yes, we want to ballot. It's not um, the percentage is raised to more than 50 percent now for that to actually become a legitimate um, legal action, sorry, a, a, a strike that the unions can take. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting you mentioned about the, the doctors going on strike and the junior doctors going on strike. What's so fascinating about this next round is that when the junior doctors went on strike, the consultant stepped in. Mm-hmm. Right now, if you've got the doctors and the consultants now thinking about going on strike, who's going to step in for them? Yeah, exactly. It's, There's it's no be- one to fill the void. No, and it's really. becoming so dangerous. And, you know, you can understand maybe the general public's, uh, I suppose, reticence to support the strikes. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if, say, for instance, you have a uh, uh, an operation, uh, an, uh, an, uh, an elective operation that's waiting, and you've been waiting for it for a couple of years, and it's been put on hold because of COVID as well. Uh, and then now you've got, you know, the, you know, the, the, the nurses striking, the junior doctor striking, prospects of consultants striking. Yeah. Uh, and hence that knock on effect. There's a time lag. So, you know, it's a case of, well, I'm looking at my own situation. You know, I'm supposed to ha- be having a knee op. Not me personally. I'm just giving an example. Okay. But say, let's say, you know, you've got a, one of these non-elective surgeries to yeah. happen. And it's been put on the back burner because of that. Um, you do feel that, well, actually, is it, yeah, how, how uh, is the public support of the NHS failing or maybe kind of like crumbling? I mean, we saw during COVID, the government had asked us to come out every, I believe it was Thursday, wasn't it, during COVID? Yeah, eight o'clock. Uh, to, to clap, to clap our key workers. And so I, I you know, th- with a lot of people, right, um, so it's just not my own opinion here, but uh, in terms of support for the NHS, support yeah. for those who work within the NHS, money money talks at the end of the day, right? I agree with you, and I think is is it dwindling? When when I speak to kind of my friends and talk to people um, that they are worried, yes, mm-hmm. that they do feel that I wish could have had an appointment that's been scheduled, they've been waiting, but the the problem is, is that when people look at it holistically, they feel that over the last 10 years, the lack of investment that's been coming through in the NHS, I mean, it started in 2010, where the time of austerity, when it first started, 3% year on year was being reduced in terms of funding. And yeah, you know, you never really saw the cracks at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But now since 2020 and beyond, mm-hmm. and then having the, the COVID, which you mentioned earlier, the problem was already there. The COVID mm-hmm. probably exasperated the situation that mm-hmm. we are in today. Mm-hmm. So when you then talk to people say, look, do you feel that the support of the doctors, the NHS staff have never be ever been on strike ever? Do you still support them? When they look at it holistically, they say, well, after 13 years of this government, am I going to be better off with the new government? I'm not saying it's going to be the Labour Party or the Lib Dems or a coalition or whatever. Or the Green Party. Or the Green Party, <laughs> yeah. But are we going to be better off mm. with a new government that's going to actually invest um, in the NHS? Because at the end of the day, 
we're talking about the number of deaths that have increased because of the lack of funding and we mm-hmm. have an aging population. Yes, we know the problem is going to get worse. But when you compare it to countries across Europe, 17 other countries, which we'll get into a little bit more detail, the NHS is considered to have had the lower end of the investment that's required mm-hmm. across comparable nations around the world. So you can start seeing that. Mm. Um, I, I wanted mean, to raise, just before you come, I wanted yeah. to raise this one thing in the Holy Quran. It said mm-hmm. in, in chapter 3, verse 11 of the Holy Quran, and it's kind of raised this, con- uh, this context into what we're talking about, you know, is it right to strike, not to strike, or, or whatever. It says that... You, you are the best people raised for the good of mankind. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil and believe in Allah. And if the people of the book had believed, it would surely have been better for them. Some of them are believers, but most of them are disobedient. Mm. And I, and I, this is something that will kind of feed into our society today. Isn't that, Dalib, the kind of question? is? Should it be the pursuit of money or should it be the pursuit of I guess social welfare. Social welfare. Yeah, I mean, this is a $64,000 question, yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah. I mean, the the problem with, I suppose, you know, not trying to get away from your question there, mm. Hanif, is that if you look at the NHS, there's no one quick fix, Yeah. right? It's a leviathan. It's a massive organ within, you know, our state. Uh, and when we say underfunding, it still um, is the biggest spend by the government. Yeah, one of the biggest spends in terms of uh, you know uh, yeah. budget. Yeah, the right? taxpayers' money. Taxpayers' money, right? Money goes into it, yeah. So when you say underfunding, I would actually con- not contest that, but I would I would most probably be the devil's advocate by saying, well, it is being funded, but it's actually are those funds being used wisely, right? Are they going to the right areas? And I think. Um, I actually had this conversation with a GP doctor friend uh, maybe about a week ago regarding this. And he made the, the point that, well, actually, it's not the fact that we're underfunded. We can always do with more money, yeah. right, uh, invested in, in critical services. But it's actually the uh, organization, the manage- management. Mm. And, uh, you know, we went into the history a bit of the NHS because ultimately, uh, because, you know, it celebrated 75 years, right. right, recently. Yeah. And Nye Bevin, Anurum Bevin, uh, the then Labour Health Minister, um, really, I suppose, the father of the NHS, one could say, uh, over 75 years ago, one of the uh, precepts of the NHS was that it is free at the point of use, right? Uh, your clinical needs, regardless of your uh, level of wealth, would be met. Now, um, and this coincides with what we've asked on Instagram as well, yeah. right? Do you think, uh, you guys out there, our, our listeners, that this will be a free service, right, in another 50 years' time? I mean, you know, it is a very pertinent question. And the way it's going, you know, are we going to be really, you know, do we do we, do we believe what um, media is like wanting us to believe or that we see that the NHS is moving towards a privatized service, yeah. something like America. Um, if it is, then yeah, everyone's going to have to have health care. Yeah. I, I've dwelled on this quite a lot, and I agree with you. It is We're heading that direction, but I, I guess there's two, two, two prongs to that. Mm-hmm. When At some point, we're going to have to use the private sector mm-hmm. to solve the backlog that we have now. So if we've got people waiting on lists and the lists are growing, how are we going to solve 
that issue now. We cannot let the people who need an operation. The unfortunate situation is our taxpayers' money is now being spent a lot more in the private sector Mm -hmm. to try and solve this problem. So if we had a situation went back, we didn't have this austerity, we were investing in and spending the right money at the right time, then we wouldn't have to have the services of the private sector to kind of get rid of our backlog. So I think the approach would be that, yes, we might need to use the private sector temporarily to solve Mm -hmm. the problem. But actually, there's the other side of the coin, isn't it? Is that have we invested in the staff have we recruited and trained sufficient nurses, mm. doctors? Have we give allocated spaces at university? Because we can't keep taking doctors and nurses, say, from African countries who need their nurses and doctors themselves. Mm. And if we keep taking them, what are they going to do? So we've well, it's had been strategical, luck. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the NHS in as, as a microcosm, mm. and it's not really a microcosm, but as a microcosm of... Uh, the UK's economy. And we look at that in relation to, say, for instance, other industries, right? Um, state, well, they're not state-owned anymore, but say, for instance, our utilities. Uh, currently, look at our water industry, right? Successive successive uh, yeah. years of underinvestment. And, okay, something which has been built and taken maybe a couple of decades to build an infrastructure, right? Because, say... You know, we're looking at water. Look at Thames Water, right? Um, you know, since the Victorian times, right, we've had sewers, canalways in London, let's say. And, okay, that infrastructure is built to last, but it can only last so long. And if we do not, uh, as a society, or I shouldn't say we, that's a collectiveness, but the people that govern us, right, if they uh, do not, uh, let's say, um, promote companies of which privatized now uh, the water industry since 19, I think the water's bill was 1989, right? Um, Since then, it's all become privatized in private companies. And so it's, well, actually, are we working for the good of society and uh, as a whole, right, the UK society, right? Or is it for, for, for a stakeholder, a shareholder who can be from, whether it be Centrica, uh, which is Spain, whether it be electricity, which is France. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And then we now know that Thames Water, um, five billion debt was raised by Macquarie, yeah. right? Yeah. Australia. So we are aware of these things. Now, coming back to the NHS, yes, you know what? It was a excellent, and I mean, a, a pure, because before the NHS, there were, I, I, was, I remember looking at this and just being in disbelief, right? In terms of healthcare in this country, there was no healthcare. So right. if we go back to Victor- or the late Victorian times, we're talking about workhouses, right? So this is what healthcare was in those days, yeah. prior prior to the inception of the NHS. Yeah. So if you were rich, then you were treated. So it's weird how things have come full circle now, right? When you talk about the private sector having to help out and relieve the burden, the short-term burden of people who are waiting for operations on the NHS. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I love the way that you went from one public sector service to another public sector service. I like to highlight these things. (laughs) No, I agree with you because that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people are now realising that if that money didn't go to shareholders and it stayed within there. Just before we bring on our excellent guest, Sophia Astin, who's waiting in the wings, wings, I just wanted to add on to the point about the sewage and the Thames Ward. When they took over the contract, 
since then, all the assets have been stripped out. Right, exactly. so there's another program that we would we would do <laughs> no problem. But yeah. just we're trying to get Fergal Sharkey on that because I, I think he's I think he's a quite a big advocate for our waterways. Here, yes. Right? So I just want to speak to our guest, but I also wanted to say one point which Nine Bevan said that mm-hmm. likely said, and I thank you very much for for raising that. He also said when the NHS was created is, is that we have a moral leadership of the world because mm. we were quite pioneering when we set up that. Uh, time for treatment that would be free to anyone who needed it. And now, who's someone who works on the front line is our next guest, yep. Sophia Asim. So, thank you very much, uh, Sophia, for joining us on the Drive Time show, and and thank you for joining us. No, no, you're welcome. So you've worked in the NHS for several years as a general practitioner, uh, receptionist, and you've been completing many administrative roles and duties. I think that you've probably seen it all change from <laughs> yeah. being a gatekeeper uh, to being welcoming people through the door, because that's <laughs> the impression. I mean, as, as an admin worker, the impression that I sometimes have, not always, is that you are gatekeepers. But actually, you truly have some real <laughs> challenges, don't you? that you've faced, especially because of the underfunding of the healthcare system? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like you said, um, I am at the front line of everything. I see everything. I know what the challenges are. And the number one thing that I've noticed is the increase in workload that our staff have been burdened mm-hmm. with, I would say. Um, when there's a shortage of staff, including doctors, nurses, and even us administra- administrative personnel, um, everyone has to do more, and it leads to longer waiting times for appointments, delays in processing appointments, um, appointments or even paperwork, and it leads to increased stress for not only us but patients too. And um, when there's a limited availability of some services, patients become frustrated. So <laughs> I've seen a lot of that myself, yeah. um, and. This is all due to lack of funding, I would say. When we need more, we need more money to provide these resources, to provide the staff that can provide the best quality of care to these patients. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the... Just recently, I had an appointment with the doctor, which I waited for about three weeks, but unfortunately an emergency mm-hmm. took place, and I had to rearrange it. So I rearranged it, um, and then when I then tried to rearrange it, I wasn't able to rearrange it. I had to call in at 8 a.m. in the morning and try and scramble for that appointment. And I said to why do I have to? I've just rearranged an appointment. I don't need an an emergency appointment. I just want to have an appointment whenever it's available. And the receptionist said, no, not possible, because many doctors are now on holiday. Mm -hmm. I cannot give you an appointment. Is that the sort of answers you have to give yourself? These are, I think it really does depend on the GP you are with, with the GP practice you are with. With ourselves here, I work in Rains Park and um, very lucky with the um, staff we have here. We're very open and supportive. So if you are rearranging an appointment, it's not something you have to call it in the morning for. But if that is how you are, how it is at your GP receptionist, and I have heard that is how it is at some surgeries, um, I think it's just how they are, you know, redirecting. Yeah. And, you know, does it does it affect working. you mentally? You know these things. It does. does it really affect? I think if I can't help a patient, it does affect me personally because I know the struggle they're going through. 
you don't see a doctor just because you want to, it's because there's something wrong mm. and you would like to fix it. So there's obviously a need for it and it does sadden me. And it does, if patients are having a bad day, of course I'm going to have a bad, bad day too. Mm. Aslanakum, uh, Sophia. You know, from your perspective, you know, on the, as the, I suppose, the first point of call, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as a receptionist uh, at a GP surgery. I mean, yeah, where, in which areas within that surgery or within your surgery, let's say, do you believe actually require that increased funding the most? Because it's down to, I suppose, within a GP surgery, the senior, yeah. the senior um, partner. Uh, GP and the other partners to decide where that budget gets spent. So where do you think is most crucial? So I think definitely in the technology and equipment that doctors are using in their um, appointments. So for us here, if a patient needs a simple test, which is as an ECG or an ultrasound, we have to refer them elsewhere to get that done. But these are simple tests that can be done in appointments if we have the equipment to do so. Um, Another thing I'm thinking of is training and development, but not of staff for patients. So there are some patients we, obviously with um, after pandemic, everything's gone online. Mm-hmm. Patients can now book their appointments online. Um, they can speak to, G- to the GP over the phone. But uh, like a lot of our elderly patients, they don't have the knowledge to use the mm-hmm. online system. Yeah, so right. I think training them to use that can really help them and also the burden that we have here as admin staff or doctors. Mm. But don't you think, Sophia, like no matter how much training, say you give um, someone, say, who is uh, in their 70s, for instance, right? Yeah. That, you know, they're never going to pick it up, right? Uh, or they will have difficulties understanding and accepting technology that maybe some of the the actual physical face-to-face services could be more streamlined. So say maybe, I don't know, I mean, I'm just sticking it out there as a possible solution Mm -hmm. that uh, you look at um, or a GP practice would look at its its lists, uh, its patient list and say, look, you know what, we've got this uh, demographic, which is, you know, I don't know how many percentage who are 70 plus. So we're going to concentrate our face-to-face, our one-to-one kind of consultations with them and actually, um, you know, alleviate that strain uh, and actually maybe kind of like wean those who are younger off that. Yeah, no, I definitely think that's actually quite a good idea. Mm. Um, and we never, if a patient is requesting a face-to-face consultation or anything, we never deny that. We all, we're always welcoming. Um, I think just because of the way the world is now, it is obviously leading to more digital resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends on the individual. There are some patients I've seen elderly, 70 plus, who are very keen to learn how mm-hmm. to book their appointments online. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not being ageist here. Yeah. I'm not being ageist no, no, by no, far. <laughs> but um, I think, yeah, no, we, I think just providing different services for different people would help mm-hmm. in a sense, but keeping it equal between them as well. As well. In a way. Yeah, yeah okay. Well, Sophia. It's been a pleasure having you on the Drive Time Show today. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. No worries. It's a pleasure to be on. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. I mean, I think on the front line, you know, it's uh, it's really important that we recognise the work. Mm. 
because they're obviously frontline workers. Mm-hmm. Like during COVID, we had bus drivers, we mm-hmm. had people who kept the shops open, mm-hmm. and we had them at, uh, at receptionists that were there meeting mm-hmm. patients. So it's really important to recognise. Yeah, because they they are they're the point of well actually they're the first point of service yeah. I say right that uh, we see or are in in touch with, and you know to that extent you know they must get it tough really like say for instance you know you quoted your situation right you've had a um uh, an appointment you know uh to see the doctor it's been cancelled due to whatever circumstance but it was is already you know in the books right in their diaries and now you actually had to go back and get it and you can't even get right you can't get to see the doctor so you can understand a, a, a normal patient's frustration and who do you vent that frustration at it's going to be the reception right. isn't it like, well why 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 right yeah. so yeah it, it is a very very difficult situation that these uh, yeah. um these receptionists find themselves in 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 in, in a surgery yeah. but in terms of if we look at NHS through the prism of Islam yeah, right yeah, yeah. Uh, the concept of a free healthcare system is actually one that falls seamlessly in line with the teachings of uh, Islam. Now, Islam teaches us that whether you are poor or rich, uh, you are deserving of the same treatment and kindness. Uh, No one lesser simply because they may not be able to afford much. Uh, Allah Almighty directs in the Holy Quran, whatever Allah has given to his messenger as spoils from towns is for Allah and the messenger and for the near of kin and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarers who are travelling to convey the word of God. These commandments have been given to ensure that uh, these commandments have been given to ensure that the wealth may not circulate only amongst those of you who are rich. Yeah. Now this well, these, this this verse actually illustrates how God has protected the rights of the poor and thereby greatly strengthened the foundations of uh, Islamic economic order and ensured that the Isla- uh, economic condition does not worsen. If economic systems uh, had been, or uh, any input, uh, per se, had been left alone and the rights of different parties had not been specified, all money would have accumulated in a few hands and the poor would have continued to suffer in deprivation. Yeah. The Quran, therefore, mandates that the money the government collects must not return to the rich but instead be used to uplift the less privileged sections of uh, society now here in the uk uh, you know, we pride ourselves uh, in offering an institution like, you know, for instance, the NHS that is readily uh, available to all regardless of financial status. And, you know, this is what Aniram Bevin wanted, right, yeah. uh, with the inception of the NHS. Uh, but yet, in these recent years, it's fallen behind uh in in contrast to healthcare systems of other developed countries, yeah. um, and that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Uh, the underfunding of the NHS mm, has it yeah. created this situation which you've described. So, are, are we saying by reading what the verse said in the Holy Quran and understanding it and what the sentiments are, is that maybe privatization is probably probably not the way forward? Then, yeah, it's not the way forward uh, in terms. Like I said, through the prism of Islam, yeah. that you know we are judged on this earth not through our monetary, our wealth, right? Um, in terms of, in the eyes of God, we're judged by our righteousness, yeah, our our, our taqwa, as we say uh, within the community. So yeah, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. 
uh, you know, the color of your skin. It just really, really doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Uh, we're all the same. So therefore, with that uh, precept, okay, that we are all the same, then things of which are dealt in a societal way, i.e. healthcare, should be the same, right? It yeah. should be meted out in equal yeah, I mean that's when you asked that question, Dalib, about or, or we we were talking about it, is that has the country kind of moved away from the support of the of the strike, or do we now feel that the NHS is not not fit for purpose? Mm-hmm. Do we feel that maybe we need to go a different direction? I still feel, and I still have hope for this country that it still wants to continuously pay its national insurance, continuously pay towards a free national health service at the point of service, Mm -hmm. free to all whoever needs it at the time they need it. I still think that is very strong in many people's minds and hearts. So I think that I can't see it happening that we would go back to how it was pre NHS 75 years ago <laughs> where people used to just pot luck where they lived or well, they... no it's not pot luck it's basically it was based on your monetary your wealth yes, right yeah. if you were rich then you would get treatment right if you were poor then you would die ultimately right and so that was the total um i suppose non-islamic uh society that we had prior to Something the inception of the NHS. So you know, you you, you spoke about uh, Anur and Bevan wanting this moral leadership. Okay. Yeah. So when we talk about moral leadership, it is to, uh, and it's, I suppose you know, when when I think of politics, I'm not a politician. I know a, a, a kind of like a, a a grain's worth of politics, really. But in my, I suppose humble opinion, right? A You're being too modest. By no, the no. Way. But in my yeah. opinion. A politician or people who rise to the the the, the, the top of their uh, profession, whether it be politics, whether it be a doctor in healthcare, they were be, they have been imbued with qualities and skills and abilities by God Almighty, right? So, say for instance, if you were there to govern us, i.e., you're going to become an MP of this country, then you're doing it not for your own benefit. You're actually doing it for society. There's something which is. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not voluntary, but it's vocational almost, right? Um, you d- you don't pick a, a career, especially nowadays, right? You can ask the junior doctors. Five years, right, in uh, doing a degree. Two years, right, doing uh, transition. Seven years later, and you're doing, you know, in excess of 80-odd hours a week, right? Who in their right minds would pick that? Well... Why don't we talk to our next guest? I yeah. think you've set up our <laughs> next guest so perfectly. So, listen, we, we're really lucky to have Farouk Dean, who's joining us today. He is actually a junior doctor, so Dalib, you can ask uh, Dr. Farouk directly. And he's actually working in Liverpool Royal yeah. Hospital, and it's great to have uh, Dr. Farouk with us. Um, assalamu alaikum. May peace be upon you, uh, Doctor. Thank you very much for joining us. So, look, I, I'm going to, before I ask you my questions Dalib's wants to ask you a direct question well, think, yeah. uh, alaikum. peace and blessings be upon you Farouk good to speak to you again good to speak to you as well well you know I was just going off on a diatribe about who in their right mind would pick that 
that course of action, yeah, to become a doctor. And obviously, it's 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 a you know it's a rhetorical question. I know why you picked it, but do you actually, for you know, given the circumstances that you find yourself in in the NHS now, do you actually regret that uh, decision? I think regret is probably the wrong word to okay. use. Uh, potentially, uh, I think that things can be different and striving for change from within is probably the way to do it. I'm not sure if this industrial action is the correct way, but I also do understand the sentiment of those striking. I think junior doctors in their first year after graduating, doing 72-hour to 80-hour week sometimes, on an average monthly salary of £14.40 uh, per hour is not that much dissimilar to what people are getting. Uh, as, as a barista, people, right? As a barista in Costa, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's the main issue. The the government are pushing uh, this, the junior doctors are pushing for this pay restoration uh, and the government sort of aren't understanding it at the moment. Mm. So, I mean, in terms of that, Farouk, you know, do you think... Um, you know, from your personal experience, yeah, you know, you know, what is the you know, impact of this underfunding on healthcare in general then? Uh, yeah. I guess the underfunding is twofold. Uh, the first fold is probably the morale, out, the morale of the staff. Mm-hmm. I think underfunding of wages, nurses even, doctors, uh, physios, occupational therapists, you name it. Everyone feels like they're undervalued, underpaid for the amount of work and hours that you have to do. For example, junior doctors who are on this £14.14 an hour sometimes have to have very, very uh, intense conversations with family members dealing with life and death situations. It's not, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that, you know, someone who's working at Costa is also a valuable person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not denigrating, but, uh, it's not denigrating your profession. That's what you're no, saying, no, right? Exactly that. Secondly, the underfunding definitely is having an impact on the patient care received in hospitals. I think mm-hmm. underfunding with lack of doctors, lack of nurses, like our minimum wait time. When I first started working in 2019, there was a very strict rule that every patient who came into the emergency department had to have a plan in place in four hours. So that right. means that whenever you come in, if you haven't been seen by four hours, the hospital will get fined X amount of money. Now, if you get seen within six hours or eight hours, that's a, that's a good day. Mm. I mean that's that's really sad to say. I mean that's not fault of the. I mean, do you, do you seriously think that if we just actually just kept on chucking money at the situation, right, money at the NHS, that that would actually resolve things? I I, I think the whole. Uh, I know your other presenter was thinking that there's a, a saviour left in the NHS somewhere. I think potentially having worked in it for over four years, I think. There's big reforms needed, and whether we can do that within the NHS and stay as a free healthcare system, uh, that would be an ideal situation for most people. But currently, the patient care is suffering, and it's not a sustainable model at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, do you think that uh, when politicians talk about increasing the number of, say, healthcare visitors? Um, not only just spending more money, but creating an additional, say, 10,000 mm-hmm. nurses and midwifery placements and double the number of medical mm-hmm. school places. Do, do you think that this is all good news for you? Mm-hmm. Do, do you like that sort of stuff? Does uh, that uh, ring a bell? Does... So I think the politicians, I think Mr. Sunak recently uh, pledged 
X number of more staff to the NHS in allied health professional roles. I don't think medical doctors were in that role, actually. Yeah. And I think this is a really important thing which people listening and presenters and the wider community need to really understand. So a junior doctor has gone through five years of training and then two years of hospital foundation training supervised. Mm-hmm. And then whenever they specialize, if they specialize to become a GP, it's three extra years. So you're talking 10 plus years to get to the, and that's the, that's the shortest pathway. Yeah, the and that's the start pathway, of your career, really. Yeah, and the longest pathway to get to a consultant can be 15 years plus. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the sort of, the Conservative Party government currently is creating these roles which are sort of two-year shortcut roles so that, for example, you can go to your GP surgery and you won't, most often than not, a lot of patients won't actually get seen by a doctor. So you have a right to be seen by a doctor, but sometimes you get a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner. These are roles created within the, by the government to sort of plug the gap of lack of doctors. Mm-hmm. But sometimes these roles are unsupervised. They clearly don't have the same training that yeah. doctors receive. So sort of doing it on the cheap. I mean, we all know doing it on the cheap never really ends out well. Mm, well, my dad used to always say, you know, uh, spend well, kind of like spend cheaply, and then you spend twice, yeah, right? Buy cheap, buy twice. Exactly, yeah. and you know, as you're saying this, Farouk, you know, what came to my mind was that you know one of these innovations from uh, the Department of Health and Social Care. Funny Monica, that is. But anyway, say, saying that you know, even as a pharmacist, they can prescribe now, right? Antibiotics. Now, I yeah had a conversation regarding this uh, actually at a uh, you know pharmaceutical do right where you had a lot of uh, practicing pharmacists and you know retired pharmacists a couple of doctors there right so the debate was well it wasn't just the, the you know doctors versus pharmacists but actually their problem was like well the the problem is overlap is where does because you know you doctors have been trained right to actually um, assess a, a patient's well-being, what their needs are, whereas a pharmacist has had totally different training. And for them to say, for instance, um, prescribe uh, someone off the street, you know, over-the-counter uh, antibiotics, wi- I wouldn't say willy-nilly, but just prescribe them because they, you know, they present with those uh, symptoms, mm. um, they are not there to see... The actual, the the I suppose the 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 ramifications of their prescribing antibiotics, and I think that was the debate that you know between my doctor friend and these pharmacists. Mm. It's like, look, my training was that actually as a doctor, and you you know you exactly the same. We know what the symptoms are, so we know how to diagnose, or we we have that background, whilst pharmacists don't. So you know, one of these ideas on the surface. Sounds like actually maybe that can relieve the workload of doctors if you allow pharmacists to uh, prescribe antibiotics. But actually, will it be one of those innovations which will come back to bite the government's bum, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I I fully agree with everything you're saying. And the debate that you had sort of comes to my mind that a doctor, if someone sort of comes with a cough as a symptom. Yeah. You can give antibiotics straight away. I mean, a pharmacist won't know how to take a detailed medical history because they're not trained to do that. And let's just say they follow a pathway which says a person X comes with a cough, maybe a little bit of phlegm, prescribe X antibiotic. 
nine times out of ten, if someone comes to hospital with a GP practice, we try and avoid giving antibiotics. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to build antibiotic resistance in the population. You know, if you go to places in the sort of South Asia or in the Middle East where you can buy antibiotics. Yeah, just over the counter. Head, uh, over the counter. Rates of uh, antibiotic um, sort of resistance, resistance is so high in those areas that actually a simple cough, which is a bacterial infection, requires probably intravenous antibiotics to treat because the oral antibiotics aren't potent enough. So I think it's sort of a very grey area of pharmacy prescribing. Yeah. I think in hospital it helps, but in the community probably not. Mm. Yeah, I, I think this whole debate is something that we need to kind of bring you on again, uh, Dr. Farouk, about this, because when you talk about the community, Dr., there are communities, houses being built without schools, without doctor practices, uh, and but there's a pharmacy around. So we need to do something to serve the community. And I think this is something where we need to know where the red line is, uh, because obviously, I agree, antibiotics are a different thing altogether, but they'll have consultation rooms, etc. But they can maybe have to prescribe something for a bit of skin, dry skin, eczema mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. There's things, or you've got a bit of an eye infection, they can prescribe something. So we need to have that open discussion. But mm-hmm. what I did want to ask you just before we let you go is that with all your experience now as being a junior doctor, and I don't know if you ever went on strike, but I'm not going to ask you about that, is that where do you think the most critical areas are in the the NHS that actually requires the proper funding? Because we talked about earlier, there's money, but is it being spent in the right place? Mm -hmm. Because it's our taxpayers' money. Where would you say is the best place to spend this money positively that actually affects the better outcomes for patients' well-being? I think it will start famously when the Conservatives were campaigning for Brexit. One of the main lines they pushed that there'd be £350 million more (laughs) a week for the NHS. Mm -hmm. I think everyone remembers that red bus. I think that that money's non-existent. Um, I think you have to start at primary care, which is your GP uh, and all of the other primary care networks outside of hospital. I think the the, the issue is you need to avoid the hospital admission in the first place. Mm And when people can't get GP appointments, they can't see a physiotherapist for their back pain. They can't get social care like carers at home or, you know, having a nurse come out once a day to administer medication. They end up in hospital. And then you get a backlog in hospital because these services aren't available in the community. There's not enough care homes. There's not enough carers. There's not enough district nurses. There's not enough community nurses. So this is the major problem. And our hospitals, for we have patients staying in hospital 50, 60. There's a patient who I saw last night on the uh, end of my night shift who's been in hospital for 364 days. Wow. Tomorrow will be his whole year <sighs> in hospital. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is primarily because social care is crumbling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Farouk. We definitely will pick this up again and invite you on to talk about mm-hmm. this in this subject. But that is a, a horrific uh, statistic you've given there. Well, mm-hmm. thank you very much, time. And you've just come off a night shift. You need to rest. You, you, <laughs> you, when you, you, you're on another night shift or you're doing a day and a night shift? What's happening? No, no, no. Uh, one more later tonight. Okay, well, we, best, we wish you the best of luck and uh, God willing, you will have a successful mm. night shift and continue on the great work. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome.
Darling, what? What? Sorry, I was right. going to say 0208 if you want to join in the conversation or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. But, <clears throat> I mean, we should, I mean, we've jumped the gun somewhat, really, with the show, I think, Hanif. Because when we talk about earlier deaths, you know, a comparative study of 19 well-off nations yeah. concluded that Britain achieves only below average, right? below average health outcomes because it spends a below average amount on every person on health care. That's what we've talked about, didn't we? That 3% cut in investment since 2010 has now led to this yeah. statistic that you just read out Exactly. Now. now, the King's Fund pinpoints the NHS's lack of doctors and nurses as one of the main reasons uh, the service is struggling. Uh, the report compares the resources available to the NHS across the UK, its performance with those of the healthcare systems in countries uh, including France, Germany, Sweden, Japan, Singapore and the US. Mm. Among its main conclusions are that in the UK, number one, life expectancy is second worst right? Second worst amongst the 19 countries studied. People who have a heart attack or stroke are more likely to die as a result than in almost every other country studied, including within 30 days of admission to hospital. Survival rates are, uh, for many, the most commonly occurring cancers, uh, including breast, colon, cervix, rectum, lung and stomach, are below average. Access to NHS dental care is worryingly threadbare in some areas. Yeah. There are fewer CT and MRI scanners than in any of the other countries studied, and the number of hospital beds is the second smallest owing to historical underinvestment in capital spending. Now, you know, those are... Uh, I mean, that's not us saying that, right? No, this is that's the... A study. Yeah, I mean, this is the study with a very reputable organisation, the King's Fund, that mm -hmm. is actually raising these points and explaining that our international cousins are somewhat much better than much us. Better we always talk about how great we are as a nation and actually after uh, 2016, we will be even better. But actually, a lot of what's transpiring over no, come the on, last we've, 10 we've just, years... We've just got that great trade deal, right? With who? Uh, Malaysia? Yeah, uh, well, part of that uh, 70... Oh, there was one that the Foreign Secretary just signed yesterday, yeah. um, and I think it will constitute probably 0.0, .0 something percent on the GDP, okay. but hopefully it will... Long-term, it may come to fruition with something else. Yeah. But actually, <laughs> I think th the most important thing is we want to talk about a bit more statistics and talk about a little bit more about what the King Funds... Um, has said and 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 how it actually just before we we speak with Basma Ikram, um, who it, it did say that where the government was saying that a lot of the situations were because of COVID, but it mm -hmm. actually describes that it just was a a compound of the consequences of the more of a decade of squeezes in investment in staff equipment, which actually widened the situation mm -hmm. we're in today. But let's let's talk a little bit more uh, with our final guests on, on this hour for this this topic that we're we're talking about is Basma Ikram, who is a junior doctor working in NHS. She also graduated from King's College in London in 2013 and obviously completed her foundation training in East Kent University Hospital. And the trust is a foundation and she's currently training to be a GP in Worcestershire. So thank you very much, uh, Basma, uh, for joining us. And um, 
thank you and i hope you're having a a good day and yep. you're not too tired and working 24/7 <laughs> thank you for having me on the show no you're welcome so we we just want to ask you what your opinion is that in some of the major challenges that are arising from the underfunding NHS, you must see it. Again, you are on the front line. What's happening? Uh, well, to be honest, there's too many to rediscuss in you know a short time frame. Mm-hmm. But to summarise, essentially, this chronic underfunding of the NHS for decades has led to there's such rising pressure on services. We just simply don't have enough specialists, enough clinics to keep up with the um, increasing demands of the population as a as a country. The population has remained steady, but the trouble is that the age group, um, often called the baby boomer generation, they're now moving into their 80s, 90s. And because they're very good at keeping people alive longer, it means they have more chronic um, illnesses. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of my patients come in and they're you know, on 50 different medications. So they're quite complex to manage. It's not sort of, you know, sort of simple illnesses that you sort of you can fix with a course of antibiotics. It's long-term um management that has increasing pressure there's lots of shortages in the nhs workforce so not just doctors but nurses pharmacists all sorts of healthcare staff we just don't have enough to cope with the needs and there's increased waiting times as well so people are having to wait for longer to get referrals to secondary care specialist services or for essential operations Hmm. they need and apart from that there's also the um there's been a massive lack of investment in the NHS infrastructure, you mentioned the lack of CT scanners and MRI scanners, which is, you know, I've worked in major tertiary hospitals that only have two scanners. Mm-hmm. So once one breaks it down, the whole hospital is backed up for, you know, the weeks it takes to fix the other scanner. But also many hospitals in this country were built over 100 years ago. Yep, mm. they were. I mean, uh, the thing is, uh, Basma, how does you know this underfunding? I mean, you, and, you know, we highlighted you know just a few points like you know not enough MRIs, not enough CT scanners, and you know you're you're picking up on that point. Now, how how does that actually affect you as a professional and the patients themselves? Then mm. this underfunding. So yeah, so from a healthcare professional point of view, it feels like sort of every year we're being asked to do more, to see more patients, mm-hmm. to work more shifts, or reducing resources. I'll give you an example for this. When I worked at East Kent University Hospital Foundation Trust as a junior doctor, bearing in mind I had just graduated from medical school, it was my, I think my first week, I was on um, the weekend cover. It was me and one other junior who had graduated a few weeks ago from medical school, we were responsible that weekend for all the medical patients, about 10 different wards, over 200 patients. Wow. And there was one senior registrar, but obviously um, that person was seeing the really unwell patients Mm -hmm. in A&E, in the ITU department. So we were left responsible. And that's not something that's unique. That's very, very common. Mm. I I just feel lucky that I didn't start on night shift because a lot of my friends, first day of junior doctor training, they Mm. were on night shifts. It was just them uh, looking after a whole hospital of unwell patients. So this is sort of leading to really increasing levels of burnout and mental health issues yep. amongst NHS professionals. So a lot of them are choosing to either leave healthcare completely as a career mm-hmm. or they're choosing to practice in other countries where there's better pay and there's better conditions. Um, another example I can give you is uh, I know the public often assume that GPs live, you know, like Daily Mail Arts report, they live a very cushy lifestyle, nine mm-hmm. to five, getting paid over 100K. 
But actually, you know, um, nine in ten GPs have to work extra hours in order to keep up before the administration, the referral, the documentation. A lot of my friends, even though they're scheduled to finish at five, don't come home before 8 p.m. Yeah. Um, they're at very high risk of burnout, and about 10% of GPs, I think, are considering leaving mm-hmm. um, over the country or, or working as a doctor. So that's only going to increase pressures on the staff who do remain. Mm-hmm. And for patients, overall, what this means is that their safety and their health care is being really heavily compromised. Mm. So waiting lists, I've said, are at all-time high. So these delays in seeing a secondary care specialist or having an operation can quite literally cost you your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know from studies that healthcare staff who are burnt out and overworked are more likely to make mistakes. They may overlook a serious diagnosis, which again impacts patient health. And hospitals just don't have enough space for the number of patients we have now. I've worked in A&E before um, in Birmingham. There's patients having to wait hours on trolleys, these makeshift trolleys in the corridors. Um, sort of staff, we can't adequately monitor them. And there have been patients who've had heart attacks, who've gone, you know, their heart stopped whilst waiting to, to move up to a ward. Mm-hmm. So Basma, right, if I were to give you that silver bullet, that uh, the uh, that penicillin, right, and transport you into the office of Steve Barkley. What would you say to him, right? Is the number one thing to do to save the NHS? I think the number one thing, and I think the thing that frustrates most doctors, is that the government, whatever solutions they're coming up with, they're all short term. Mm, sticky you know, plasters. No one seems, yes, exactly. Sticky plasters, and also there's an element of political reasons because you know you're only mm. in government for five years. What's the point in investing for 10, 20, 30 years down the line when your party, when your party might not be in power by then? Right. So I think that that's the issue. And, and some of the solutions they offer long-term are causing impact. So I'll give you an example. One solution the government's announced the UK shortages of doctors is increased medical school places. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, they, you know, they've announced they're going to increase, I can't remember, thousands of more medical 5, school places. Yeah. 5,000, yeah. I worked for the last three years at Aston Medical School, which is a new medical school that opened in about 2017. This year, we're having our first cohort of doctors graduating in July, in just a few weeks' time, actually. But the trouble is there aren't enough hospitals in the UK and there aren't enough doctors to train these medical students. I've had, you know, in, when they go in their placements, about five or six medical students from, from a medical school on one ward, I've had them complain to me that, you know, on the ward there's already students from three other medical schools there. Mm-hmm. So that's about... 30, you know, 20 to 30 students there. And so obviously the doctors can't train them. Yep. And, they're, you know, they're having to compete with each other to examine patients. The patients don't want to be examined by 30 different students. So that's not, that's not the solution. In fact, there is this, what we call this ST3 bottleneck when it comes to training. And what that means is that we've got a lot of um, core trainees, but it's when they apply to specialty training, for some reason, the number of posts just drop. And because of that, you've got uh, doctors essentially stuck in their careers. They're stuck at the sort of junior level with that, you know, not because yeah. they want to be, but because they just want enough posts and every year gets more competitive. Yeah. So number one, I'll change the training. I would increase the number of, you know, in, invest, uh, give um, deaneries, which are these sort of bodies that govern hospitals in terms of training and teaching, encourage them to in, produce more higher training posts. So then we have in the future more consultants, essentially, mm-hmm. um, there, and there also needs to be efforts to essentially retain doctors. So currently, one third of junior to- doctors have plans to work abroad mm. because because of the year on year, you know, essentially pay cuts because our pay hasn't risen with inflation. Mm-hmm. The poor quality of training they're receiving in the UK, having to work increased hours of anti you know, anti social hours, which mm-hmm. severely impacts 
your physical wow. health, your mental health, times your family, yep. right cost. If we improve conditions, then you know you're going to improve patient care, and you're going to have more doctors essentially willing to stay instead yeah. of having to try and poach. Okay. Yeah. No, no, I mean, there's so much you were right. Mm. Uh, there's just not enough time to be able to, yeah. you know, answer even the first question. I mean, it was just one thing that you could ask him, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> but Steve Barkley, we'll get him on the show and we'll have, we'll take every all your points and we'll ask him. And if he's willing to come on and, and talk to myself and Ethan Dalib and we'll quiz him, we'll take mm. your questions and let's see how he responds. We know the answers. But yeah, it's already. Pli- they're all political <laughs> answers. They're not really, you're right, no long-term solution. Well, look, I, there were so many more questions that we wanted to ask you, but you're right, we've run out of time, and we'll have you uh, back on again. And thank you again for your time. It's been it's been really good uh, talking to you. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome. So that, that was Dr. Basma Ikram, who, well, is now actually current, currently uh, training to be a GP after all of that activity. I think it yeah, also is see, work-life balance. This, this, this is the, the point, Hanif, right, that uh, all our guests have um, pointed out that, you know, it's not just because of this um, underfunding although it is it's the underfunding but it's the the continued drip 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 of underfunding right it's it's it just erodes their morale uh, as a, a healthcare provider and then you know what else are you going to do really i mean yeah. in i mean if we look at the you know just to conclude this piece right uh, the nhs has suffered for years and therefore yeah it it will take dedicated attention and patience uh, before anything you know of significance can change um, you know, it's also our duty to take care of our own health, um, as Dr. Farouk would say, and remain fit as we can to ensure uh, to avoid ill health and actually ending up in secondary care. Uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, once said, every one of you is a shepherd and is responsible for his flock. The leader of the people is a guardian and is responsible for his subjects. A man is the guardian of his family and is responsible for his subjects. A woman is the guardian of her husband's home and of his children and is responsible for them. And the slave of a man is a guardian of his master's property and is responsible for it. Uh, surely every one of you is a shepherd and responsible for his flock. And we should remember that. Welcome back and thank you very much for staying with us for this second hour. What a roller coaster first hour. I mean, the time mm, just flew true. by because it is such a contentious and opinionated and everyone's got an opinion, mm-hmm. irrespective if they think they don't, but they all use the NHS. So anyway, we mm-hmm. will come back to that subject 100%, darling. But mm-hmm. even our next hour here, we've got a fantastic subject that we really want to talk about, which yeah. kind of links into that as well. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if anything that interests you, you want to get in touch with us, call us on the normal number on 020868. Eight seven seven eight seven eight, and also you can tweet us and get us on our social medias on at Voice of Islam UK. So by all means, let's let's you know you're most welcome to join us and interact with us. Well, actually, Hanif, I think you know we're a bit remiss here because uh, just to kind of like underline that final topic of NHS. Yeah, I wanted you to we do had that the Instagram. Quote, yeah. yeah, also yeah. Um, well, let's go to the Instagram story yeah. first, right? So we did ask at the top of the hour. You know, in fifty years from now, you know. Will the NHS remain free at the point of use? Yeah. So out of our poll, uh, 21% said yes, which is, you know, those that see that the, the glasses are full. But unfortunately, 79% conversely see that the glass is half empty. So w- what side of the fence do you sit on? I'm, well, you know, what? I love to think that, uh, yeah, the glass is half full, but 
you know, my my head tells me that I'm with the 79%. No, I think it has to be that way. Something tell I, I think I'm on the 21%. And, yeah. I, and I can argue all of that, but I still believe in society. I mm-hmm. believe that we as a as a nation, we've always been that way, mm-hmm. where we are pretty much so- socialist, although the world, many of our Western countries are moving more away from a more of a nationalistic, uh, right-wing type society, losing their socialist values. I still feel the United Kingdom will rise up and again be a beacon to the whole of the Western world, especially in Europe, to prove that we have our social values. I think it will take more than 50 years for people to decide to stop paying for the NHS because they will recognise more and more that the need of the NHS, for especially for those who are more vulnerable, need something mm-hmm. although the rich and the poor will increase mm-hmm. but there'll still be more people who would definitely need an nhs so i believe mm-hmm. that the 21 percent would increase slightly with my vote on that side so, so you were with the uh, remainers the 48 percent then back in the day in 2016 <laughs> but anyway let's let's draw a line underneath that yeah um and our second hour we'll be talking about justice now that's you know coincides the 17th of July, right? Now, the World Day for International Justice is actually observed today. Now, every year, uh, it's to recognize the strengthening system of international justice and also to promote the rights of victims. Now, in uh, in this hour, we're, we're going to embark on a journey to explore the f- profound connection between justice and peace. Um, so we're going to delve into this topic, uh, justice, the key to peace. Now, you know, some people, I think, or you know, in general, you know, we pretty much have an understanding of what justice yeah. is, right? So the word justice actually appears 24 times in the Holy Quran in 22 verses, such as its importance uh, in terms of terminology in the eyes of Allah Ta'ala, uh, God Almighty. So much so that the word justice is one of the central ideas of the Holy Quran because it is one of the most important attributes of Allah himself, the most, the just. Now, the word justice means to put everything in place uh, there where it is supposed to be. So justice can take place um, in all walks of life, really, in all aspects of your life, in family, in business, at work, uh, with friends, associates, uh, you know, acquaintances everywhere. Uh, closely related to the concept of justice in the Quran is the concept of equality, yeah. which goes hand in hand with justice. A simple example of justice in Islam is the Friday prayers, for instance, uh, where we attend at our you know our local mosque. Uh, men will stand together, shoulder to shoulder, rich or poor, dark or fair skinned, or in my case, kind of like bronze skinned, uh, <laughs> and pray together. Uh, now, that is equality. Um, that is justice. And that is what Allah has asked us to embrace. Yeah, I, I really like that. And when you sit down and you reflect on all of that, and I really like the example you gave about every Friday where we come together and listen to the Friday prayers mm-hmm. of the imam. But actually, we're very fortunate that all around the world, we are able to listen to our current worldwide head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed Malabi, his helper, mm-hmm. delivers his worldwide sermon, which we watch on our TV channel mm-hmm. and 
also on board. You really can't well, like radio. really plugging well, it on then. <laughs> yeah, but actually, I, the the thing is, is that we are very lucky. And obviously, the point I was going to make that although we you made the point that we stand together, irrespective of who we are, what our background are, mm-hmm. every Friday is like a little mini celebration for us, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because every time we go to the mosque on a Friday, once we get uh, spiritual feeding as much as anything else by listening to the great words, but also we get to meet our brothers and mm-hmm. sisters and we meet people on an equal level. Mm-hmm. And then we're able to embrace and understand mm-hmm. and have like a bit of a reset, mm-hmm. become a bit humble, enjoy ourselves. So it's a way of celebrating in that well, last thing you said that Allah is what he's asked us to embrace in that we want us to embrace the the equality of people. Mm-hmm. So we're doing that every mm-hmm. Friday without fail. Mm. But there are different types of justice, aren't there? There's like yeah. loads, isn't there? I mean, you know, if we boil it down, well, you know, what, what, how, what is our interpretation of justice? Now, it can be boiled down to three types, distributive, retributive, and restorative, all the ifs, right? Now, let's start with distributive justice. Yeah. Um, distributive justice is about the fair division of resources within a community. Um, you know, we just spent the last hour talking about the NHS, right? So fair dis- division means everyone either gets or has access to the same services and physical goods. Why? The basis of distributive justice is that everyone is morally equal. Distributive justice affects areas like income, wealth, opportunities, jobs, welfare and infrastructure. Uh, principles uh, of distributive justice include equity, need, and proportionality, While, whilst the basic definition of uh, distributive justice is simple, how a society should fairly distribute resources is very complex. Yeah, and right. we see that in what we've just covered in the first hour, the NHS, uh, how to distribute healthcare in a uh, egalitarian way. And it is, you know, although it's like a lot of concepts on paper, everyone would be behind it, right? It's like socialism. Everyone would be behind it because it doesn't see as uh, one uh, sector of the society benefiting at the cost of another. It's total equality in that sense, right? And so should, for instance, we're talking about healthcare, be whether you can afford the operation or not, you still get the operation, right? Because you are in need. You're in clinical need of that operation, whether it be for cancer, whether it be for an elective surgery, whatever it may be, right? Regardless of race, color, creed, or um, monetary, you know, your wealth, okay, you're going to get the operation. Yeah, you're right. And and that's how as a society we need to live. I, I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine who's from Germany. Mm-hmm. And Germany have a very good way of this distributive justice when it comes to the way the country distributes taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Hamburg is an area which in itself never really um, lost its identity, although it had money that was invested because the policy within that country was that no one region would ever be given more investment than another region, mm-hmm. say, comparing it to, say, Hamburg, comparing it to Frankfurt, and obviously after the partition as well, which kind of kept a lot of the wealth distributed within the country. But when we look at our country in the UK, where we see London, mm-hmm. London is truly 
a capital city where so much money is invested and so much wealth is produced that actually results in quite a lot of a percentage of wealth that then tra- travels across the country. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we distributed our wealth equally in some of our other major cities mm-hmm. like Liverpool. But isn't that Edinburgh. what the current government's supposed to be? It's with trying to do up. a devolution. Well, right. So you're going to go. <laughs> you're going to get me started down the road, which I'm not going to start. But actually, the the point with this is that if we mm. could understand truly the levelling up, true levelling up, right? Mm-hmm. Not saying that we're going to build 40 hospitals and actually more Only than half most of probably build 11. Not even... Right, by the build, end of the decade. Yeah, or, or not even... I mean, even today, there was a hospital in the newspaper yeah, but this, today. This, this, this is from the National Audit. Yeah, uh, I mean, but even that. in the papers, there was an announcement that uh, the hospital in Uxbridge and Hillingdon was now not going to get its true funding that was promised so mm-hmm. it, it, we're talking about is this distribution of taxpayers wealth where we can then create opportunities where people live because we know that we can't have everybody traveling from the north come mm-hmm. down to the south because that's where the jobs are mm-hmm. because we're already at breaking point in mm-hmm. so many of our public services and although the opportunities we need to give incentives for mm-hmm. big major organizations to go other places so i think that's another example but this is this is going back to i mean we're talking about justice right yeah and uh, having a you know a society where everyone is really deemed equal right it has equal opportunities so you know when we look at this country the con and, and my point being that the concepts that we have they are concepts only it's only when we actually see the fruition and their promises, right? Whether they be a po- politician's promises, whatever. So, you know, your 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 idea of actually, you know, what well, we are London centric, we are capital city centric here in the UK, yeah. and that wealth which is generated usually stays here because it's the seat of central government, London, right? And it should really be redistributed to you know different areas within the UK. Now, one of those ideas was, you know, the high-speed link, right? So... H2. H2. So how comes it's still costing us in the billions? And now it's actually being dismantled in the sense that the whole idea uh, or that concept I keep on going on about in this this regard of actually, you know what, we can provide a link between the south and the north straight across the Pennines as well, well, you know, according to I think you know uh, Miss Nandy, that's not even going to happen now, right? Yeah. So what we should have done is rather than build the link from London to Birmingham, mm-hmm. we should have built the second link that crosses, yeah, exactly. as you said, the Pennines. If the we Pennines. really wanted to have that, but obviously these are this is where the political ideology, mm-hmm. the what what are. I hate to say it, but where are the votes? What can happen? Mm-hmm. Where where do we benefit? And that's where this justice mm-hmm. of what we're talking about to get true justice and peace and distribution of wealth needs to be done honestly. That's exactly. the thing. True Transparency. justice. Transparency. Transparency, yeah. Mm. So, so yeah, go ahead. I was gonna do you want to do the retributive justice as yes, well? Yeah, go the repetitive, yeah, yeah. The repetitive. Well, actually, I'm falling into it. It's all, <laughs> all kind of like, 
Anyway, retributive <laughs> justice, justice yeah. right? Now, this is the second uh, type of justice that we were talking about. Is a theory of justice that focuses on punishment as a means of addressing wrongdoing and restoring societal benefit uh, balance. Mm-hmm. It, is a, it is based on the principle that offenders should be punished in proportion to the harm they have caused, therefore, or thereby, restoring a sense of fairness and equilibrium within society. Now, this core idea or the core idea behind retributive justice is that individuals who commit crimes or harmful acts deserve to be punished as a form of retribution for their actions. The severity of the punishment is typically determined by factors such as the severity of the offence that they have actually committed, uh, the harm which it has caused and the culpability Um, Yes, the culpability of that offender. Now, the underlying philosophy of retributive justice is rooted in the concept of getting your just desserts, let's say. Uh, And this also suggests that individuals should receive what they deserve based on their actions. Uh, Proponents argue that retribution serves as a deterrent, sending a message to potential offenders that there will be consequences for their actions, harming innocent people or unfairly uh, punishing certain groups over others. And, you know, what do you think about that, Hanif, then? And, and let me you know, throw that out there. What about capital punishment, then? Yeah, that's what's going through my mind as you were reading it, because yeah. there are different ways of creating deterrence. Yeah. Some countries around the world have capital punishment. And mm-hmm. even in Islam, you know, if you're caught stealing, you as a deterrent and as a punishment, you ha- can have that hand chopped. Mm-hmm. You know, so what we got to do is look at the statistics. What are we seeing, depending on the type of retributive um kind of actions taken uh, what are the results where are we seeing crime is it going up Mm -hmm. is it going down are people feeling safe in society Mm -hmm. and the people who have had the uh, sentence delivered to them what has been the effect? Are they reoffending? Are they mm. not reoffending? Yeah. I mean, where's what is the, the investment level of recidivism? Yeah. Right? So, so all those things need to be taken into account. But again, it's another service within our country mm-hmm. that has had the lack of investment. Mm-hmm. We're happy to build prisons, mm-hmm. but we're not happy to invest in those who youngsters who end up being caught into a criminal gang and yeah. then get sent to prison what is their justice what mm. what they're the innocent victims mm. sometimes i think being brought into that you know yeah there's a conversation we had with one of our previous guests in the first hour yeah uh dr farouk and um when we asked him the question you know, you know and it was about underfunding within the nhs just to remind our listeners out there and you know where would he put that funding really uh, to help the nhs and his his vote was for primary care, right? You know, GP centres, you know, social care centres, uh, you know, care centres for the elderly. So, you know, and as he was saying this, in my mind, straight away, prevention is better than cure, Correct. right? So that is not, and, and that is a precept really through society. Prevention is better than cure, right? So, you know, as uh, uh, an answer to, you know, your question there is like where or you know your 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 comment that we're quite happy in this country to build prisons but what about youth centers right well a lot of those youth centers for the last since 2013 or even longer have now or at least the last 13 years have gone yeah i was growing up i used to go to my scouts Mm -hmm. i used to go to a local community center 
um, and meet with friends, play football, play cricket, do mm-hmm. all these things at the weekend, Sunday school, mm-hmm. uh, you name it. All of these places have now gone because the buildings are now gone and not available. Yeah, Very few. And how are they funded? They're usually funded by volunteers or there's a community interest group that's got together and built a kind of club where people can exercise, where kids can come come and enjoy themselves. But all that's gone. It's, it's a really worrying moment and time for people mm. in today's society. So so what is it that we do? But you mentioned about the, the social care. Where should the money go? And I agree with you. Prevention is better than cure. So we have situations where we have, and this is a known true fact, and this is what actually happens, is that where young kids at the age of 10 who are kind of look beyond gangs, who have got nice shoes, um, looking like they're not going to school, they're flashing their money, nice cars, and they're thinking, well, I I might need a little bit of that. I'm not getting any love and care, or I've got Mm -hmm. no friends at home, or I'm a bit of a uh, socially inadequate. So what do I do? So these are where the kids become victims Mm -hmm. because those gangs recruit them. Mm Mm-hmm. They recruit them, they give them some nice shoes, give them some money, and they send them on a job, county lines. Mm-hmm. They go to that county line, they go and drop something off, they mm-hmm. have a mobile phone, have some money. But what actually happens is that when they go over to the county line, they get beaten up, mm-hmm. they have their money taken off them, and they have the mobile phone stolen. And then when they come back to their gang member, that's when they're stuck. Mm-hmm. They owe the gang members some money mm-hmm. in the phone, and they have to pay it off. But the poor old young lads, or whatever it is, girl, actually it was planned for that individual to get beaten up, to have mm-hmm. his mobile phone and have his money taken. Mm-hmm. That's how they recruit them and keep them in. Mm-hmm. So these youngsters are victims. So when they go to youth centres, youth offending centres, now, shall we punish them further? Mm-hmm. Shall we then not give them any retribution, mm-hmm. guidance, mm-hmm. and let them go back out and join the gang again? Or mm-hmm. do we build a... Um, an establishment where they can then learn and then mm-hmm. when they come out they do not have to go back to the gang they go off have a career they can mm-hmm. go and do something so this is a real big issue that we need to kind of resolve in society we're not we're not dealing it we're not dealing with it. all we're doing is throwing money and giving police more powers mm-hmm. so they can create more discomfort more mistrust in mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. we're failing our vulnerable kids yeah too true um, and then moving on and so we've we've covered the first two types of justice. Uh, finally, we've got restorative, 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 restorative. That's it. Thank you very much. Restorative justice, which was developed or a concept developed in the 1970s. Though many of its tenets come from indigenous justice practices, uh, restorative justice focuses on helping victims of crimes but it also wants to help offenders understand the harm that they've caused the goal is to repair not punish conflicts uh, engagement accountability uh, cooperation and community are all essential principles restorative justice practices have been used in many criminal justice cases but they They've also been adopted during uh, during involving families, schools and workplaces. Unlike uh, retributive justice, restorative justice doesn't focus on what criminals deserve, but rather on what victims need to heal and what communities do, can do to yeah. prevent 
playing offending yeah. or it's, reoffending. I should yeah, say. I mean, it's really good that sometimes when you have outside the old Bailey when they come out and do their statement, mm-hmm. sometimes the on behalf of the 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 families that have had their child beaten up, killed, murdered, or, or mm-hmm. whatever. They talk about this, don't they? They kind of say that uh, we, we're healing. We we need um, a way out to to be able to express ourselves. So it's mm-hmm. a really good good way of you know Dealing healing. With it, yeah. But actually, what we wanted to do is play a keynote address, didn't mm-hmm. we, from His Holiness Hazrat Masood Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, uh, where he gave um, a, a speech on this subject that we're we're talking about today. In on the 28th of October 2016, so that's the beauty. The advice was given many, many years ago, and it was done at York University, Ontario, Canada. So, we wanted to just play this to our listeners so we can get an, another perspective on this discussion that we're having today. Here you are in the world today, we witness double standards and hypocrisy at so many levels of society and the resulting lack of peace is a cause of the utmost concern and grief for those people who sincerely feel the pain of humanity. As the leader of a worldwide Muslim community, it is this issue that concerns and worries me more than any other. As a Muslim leader, it is a source of grief to me personally, that the disorder taking place today is centered around so-called Muslims and is being associated with Islam. On the one hand, most of the wars being fought and the lives being lost are in the Muslim world, whilst on the other hand, so-called Muslims have now spread their networks of terror further afield and are targeting innocent people here in the West. It is a tragedy of the very greatest proportions that such people seek to falsely justify their hate-filled and evil acts in the name of Islam. Rather than serving Islam, all they are achieving is to defame its name. The truth is that the very meaning of the word Islam is peace, security, and love. Given this, we have to accept that either the uh, deplorable acts of terrorists and extremists are entirely against the teachings of Islam, or alternatively, that Despite meaning peace, Islam is actually a religion that advocates extremism and violence. To assess which of these opposing propositions is correct, we must consider what Islam's true teachings are. We must look to the primary source of Islam, its holy book, the Holy Quran, and furthermore to the conduct and example of its founder, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him. Therefore, 
in the time available i will now present islam's true teachings to you and thereafter hopefully you will be in a position to understand whether the division and conflict witnessed in the world today is a result of islam's teachings or a consequence of moving away from them during the life the founder of islam the holy prophet muhammad peace and blessing of allah be upon him laid down in just a few words the foundation for peace in the world and between all peoples the prophet of islam peace and blessing of allah be upon him said that a person should desire for others whatever he desires for himself i believe that this timeless principle is as true today as it ever was in the past certainly every person desires peace for themselves and to be saved from all anxieties and worries every person hopes that he or she has the means to live comfortably and without hardship every person seeks good health so that they can enjoy their lives free from pain or difficulty every person craves good standing in their community and respect of others in a similar way every government and every nation also seeks such prosperity however how many people or nations are there who truly desire peace prosperity and success for others in terms of verbal proclamations it is very easy to say that yes we do desire the best for others however in practice it is much more difficult and challenging wherever there is a conflict of interests most people tend to prioritize their own interests and welfare over and beyond the rights of others this is true at an individual level and also true at a collective and national level today rather than selflessness sadly we tend to see selfishness most people or nations prioritize their own rights and are quite willing to relegate and demean the rights of others in order to fulfill their own goals and ambitions in terms of the muslim world it is because the leaders and people have discarded the true teachings of their religion that they are now driven by their division and unrest put simply the leaders have failed in their duties to protect their people and to safeguard their rights and in turn rebel elements have also deviated from what is right and just instead of traveling upon a path of 
justice and integrity we have seen time and time again the world's major powers being concerned only with fulfilling their own interests whether they decide to side with the muslim governments or the opposition groups is not dictated by what is fair and what is right rather only by which party better serves their own interests yet according to islam our desire and motivation to fulfill our own interests should always be matched by our desire and motivation to fulfill the rights and interests of others if acted acted upon this is the golden principle that will unlock the door to true peace and security in order to establish peace islam also places great emphasis on the fulfillment of one's trust thus chapter 4 verse 59 of the holy quran states verily allah commands you to make over the to make over the trust to those entitled to them and that when you judge between men you judge with justice and surely excellent is that with which allah admonishes you allah is all hearing all seeing <clears throat> in this verse muslim have been clearly instructed to fulfill the trust that have been placed in them this includes trust and oaths that have been undertaken at a personal level and those trusts that are collective in terms of personal trust a person should not seize the the property or rights of others or fail to fulfill the responsibilities he owes to other people in terms of collective trust one important aspect is the duty of the citizens to elect representatives of the state who they consider to be of the greatest value to their nation when it comes to election or nominations a person should not vote automatically for his ally or party party member rather they should consider who is the most qualified and suitable for the task at hand thereafter those who are elected and handed the keys to government or power should exercise their duties with honesty integrity and justice this teaching is the model of democracy that islam champions in every society there are mutual trust and obligations placed upon all people and for the society to function successfully it is necessary for normal citizens and the leaders to fulfill their responsibilities towards each other with true justice 
if these principles had been adhered to in the Muslim world, then we would never have seen the conflicts. Yeah, wise words with our head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community where he was addressing in Ontario. And, you know, if you could just reflect on everything that His Holiness said, then you would probably have a different outlook in life, wouldn't you, Dalib? You'll just see that how important it is to respect, how important it is to understand equality is actually the root of peace, tranquility and prosperity. Mm. I mean, we're talking just um, whilst we're listening to that audio about justice, whether it be on a individual level and thus uh, and even on a society level and you know that's the thing you know when when you look at justice you know it's a, it has a crucial role in establishing and maintaining peace you know on the wider scale on society as a as a whole now you know his holiness's speech basically linked justice and peace i mean they are linked intrinsically yeah, right? now without justice true and lasting peace you know cannot really be realistically achieved. Uh, When justice is upheld, it creates an environment of trust, stability and social cohesion. It promotes respect for human rights, uh, resolves conflicts and ensures that the well-being of all members of society um, or, you know, regardless of their background or their beliefs. Now, justice, you know, it's not just a legal concept, uh, you know, used in courts, or a mere formality. You know, it's the very essence that underpins the fabric of peaceful coexistence. It ensures that every individual is fairly treated, you know, whether it be you know, your, your kids saying, well, that's not fair, Dad. You know, that, you, know yeah. you need to maintain you know, a, a good household, right? So that's where justice is. And, you know, it's, it's the bridge that connects diverse communities and cultures. It fosters unity and understanding. Yeah, I mean, when you look at history, I mean, throughout history, we've we, we've all experienced, I mean, we see every five years, potentially, the power changes. Mm-hmm. But also, we've witnessed that the power of justice in, in, like, the way we deal with it has healed thousands of wounds and resolving disputes. Mm-hmm. If you look at the United Nations, although whatever people talk about the United Nations, but what it actually does, it always takes out the sting in the tail. So at least people can come together at yeah. some point. If there is no organization that has that ability to mm-hmm. kind of get people to the table. Yeah, calm down. Let's have a, let's have a chat. Yeah, I mean... Have, like ACAS. Ha, 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 <laughs> I mean, you know, if we look at the war in Northern Ireland, it was yeah. the uh, Canadians that helped get the conversation started. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, we know the Americans came in and then mm-hmm. solved it, and then the Brits came in and, and solved it. But someone had to take the sting out of it. So mm-hmm. all of these things, we've seen how justice has changed hands and how resolving disputes are really important. And it's always has always been about building inclusive societies, mm. hasn't it? Because I mean, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, something else that uh, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Mazur Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, has said regarding this. And he states, you know, in accordance to justice, now, according to my belief, it is not possible to fulfill the rights of Allah, the Almighty, or attain his nearness without fulfilling the rights of our fellow human beings and all of God's creation. True Muslims, therefore, live their lives peacefully and seek to propagate peace, tolerance and mutual understanding in society. 
uh, in society. Indeed, Ahmadi Muslims believe that the founder of our community was sent by Allah, the Almighty, to draw the attention of mankind towards these core fundamental Islamic principles of fulfilling the rights of worship of God Almighty, fulfilling the rights of humanity, and seeking to spread peace and harmony throughout the world. He bequeathed us a legacy of peace by making it clear that there is a direct correlation between the worship of God Almighty and fulfilling the rights of humankind. And this goes to basically the tenets or the two pre-concepts of becoming a true Muslim. Uh, number one is to worship God Almighty, yeah. right? To give him your prayers and number two is to serve humanity yeah, really i mean if we just understood those two concepts then that's what islam is pretty much uh, built on mm -hmm. i mean the holy prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him he kind of also explained that there are seven categories of people whom god will shelter under his shade on the day of of, of the resurrection when there when there will be no um shade at that that moment mm -hmm. and he the the life of the holy prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of allah be upon him we know that he was a beacon of light and he guided muslims worldwide and, and basically his character and actions and teachings exemplified kind of like the highest standards on compassion and righteousness i mean we're, we're going to go into a lot more detail as well but in, in a in a conversation that uh, imam akram sahib um had with one of our imams at at, at jamia as well mm -hmm. who was a graduate and he went into a lot of detail about this concept and understanding how everything works but just before then we we just wanted to say you know thank you for the producers mm -hmm. um who have done two great hours uh, on the show uh, Zakria Mubashir and Imam Akram who have been great producers in, in all of this and there's one more which I'm just about to get the name for as well and it's uh, Zohra Mubashir as well yeah. so make sure we get all, all that in. and obviously Dalib it's always a pleasure yeah, being able pleasure to, to, be... to, to, to present with you as well <laughs> hopefully we do another uh, show together but you know we, we will leave our guests with this wonderful interview um, mm -hmm. and then we'll see each other at the next show thank you yeah. very much we have uh, with us Imam Anas Mahmood, who just graduated from Jamia Ahmadiyya UK. And uh, we'll be asking him a question about uh, justice, the key to peace. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft from Shonas. Welcome, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa I appreciate you calling me here and it's a pleasure to be back on here again. Thank you. Thank you for your time. So as you know that we are talking about justice and, uh, you know, peace. So what are the you know fundamental principle of justice in Islam Islamic teaching and how do you, do they you know guide muslim in their you know interaction with others So Islam the religion of Islam itself you know uh, is based on you know justice and equality for all uh, we we see in you know in the very inception of Islam uh, we see you know the example of the holy prophet of Islam may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him in his early dealings with the people of Mecca uh, and, uh, you know, when he became the governor general of the uh, uh, state of Medina, he used he built a state that was, you know, founded on yeah. the principles of absolute justice and, you know, morality. And uh, it, it's, um, you know, the fundamental teaching of Islam is, you know, to separate yourself, be impartial from every any leanings that you might have. And, you know, look at yeah. uh, stuff from a uh, from a neutral perspective right. so that it allows you to actually 
you know, see both sides of a, of the issue of any um, of the issue at hand, and to make an informed judgment. And uh, we we see this, uh, you know, throughout the life of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. We see this uh, in his sayings, in the collection of hadith, and we see in the Holy Quran as well. Fantastic. So, as you know, going further, how does Islam, you know, address the issue of social justice and the fair distribution of wealth and resources within a society? You see, this is you know a very uh, uh, you know an important topic that you've actually touched upon mm-hmm. because. Uh, we see so to understand what Islam says, we have to look at you know what uh, our society in uh, today in the, uh, our modern society is uh, built upon. So we live in a capitalistic society where you know uh, everyone gets wealth based on merit, and if you work hard for it, you'll get you know, the money. But uh, the you know the issue with that sort uh, of stuff is that you have you know insane amounts of wealth in society, and right next door to that, you have insane amounts of poverty as well. Right. So what Islam teaches. Is that you know you can't be greedy. You have to keep you know the um, the capital of society moving th- uh, I- I- throughout society. Money cannot stay in one uh, spot at one time. For example, if you have you know savings that you are not using for a whole you know a whole year, then you have you are taxed upon it. Not in, but tax not in that way. But uh, it, it, there is uh, zakat applies to it. So that is mm-hmm. that if you, if there is money that you're not using for a whole year then you have to give a portion of that uh, uh, wealth to charity to someone who might need it and this is mm-hmm. a concept that you know the this the western world the this capitalist society uh, does not uh, understand because there is insane wealth of poverty next to insane amounts of wealth so what islam teaches that if you have money if you are a man of standing of wealth mm-hmm. of uh, you know of a great uh, possibilities then you have to share that you have to share that within society you have to allow you know the even the poorest of the poor uh, a chance to actually you know experience that wealth to have wealth in one area of society and not in anywhere else and to deprive someone else in society of the same wealth that you have that is you know that is immoral in any sense of of the way so with this islam addresses this issue and this actually you know shows that islamic teachings are not outdated uh, you know, for fourth, fifth, sixth century Arabia, uh, uh, in the barren desert of Arabia, these teachings these apply today, even today in our daily dealings. So this is, you know, this uh, it just shows us more important than ever to uh, the, to understand that if we live and breathe the teachings of the Holy Quran of Islam and understand our religion, then we can actually stay true to the principles of justice that the Holy Quran and Islam uh, Islamic teachings have set us set out for us. Beautiful. I think you mentioned very, you know, uh, wisely the example of zakat, because I think mm. in order to establish, you know, peace in society, you have to have, you know, uh, you have to have fair distribution of wealth. Otherwise, uh, you know, in 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 today's society, we we'll see that you know there's a huge gap between rich and poor, and that makes you know people think that you know uh, they not belong to society or you know uh, they're not uh, having a fair you know, part Absolutely. of the wealth. So that that makes people anxious and that will lead to the, you know, unrest in the people. So you mentioned exactly. a very important point that uh, mm. Islam, you know, teaches us to 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 take care of the people who are in need, especially yeah. you know, uh, the poor people. And the one way is to give alms, zakat, which you mentioned. Yeah, sure. absolutely. So that, you know, that... Uh, I'll ask you the next uh, question, which is very related to our current topic. Can you provide your example from the life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that you know illustrate his commit, uh, you know, commitment to justice and his role in maintaining peace? 
Absolutely. So when the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was in the state of Medina, he was actually the governor general of that state. And he, under him, you know, he when he came, there were there was a tribal rivalry between people. There was, uh, you know, uh, there was Jewish tribes, there were Muslim tribes. And, you know, th there was great rivalry between them. And this rivalry actually stretched back, uh, you know, generations upon generations. So what the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, what he actually did is that he set out a charter. And now that is uh, known today as, you know, the Charter of Rights uh, of Medina. Right. Now, this, uh, the stuff that you see written inside that charter, it actually, you know, it's fascinating how, you know, someone in, you know, 5th, 6th century Arabia could come up with uh, a, um, a charter of rights that, you know, bears striking resemblance to what you see in the, the UN court, uh, you know, the UN's uh, Charter of Human Rights or right. the Magna Carta or the, you know, or the Declaration of Independence of the USA. It actually sets out in detail how one in society um, can, has to, you know, deal with everyone else, how, you know, how... Um, uh, how a society should go about doing things. And in addition to this, we see the, you know, among the last things that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said um, was in his farewell sermon. He said that no Arab is uh, superior to any non-Arab or no, you know, uh, uh, black person or white person is superior to uh, a, a person of any other ethnicity, except in piety and good deeds, which shows us the actual, you know, the 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 principle of Islam, of Islamic teachings, which is that you know, do good works, be pious, uh, and and that is how one will attain merit in the eyes of Allah the Almighty. Beautiful. I think you, the example you mentioned of the Charter of Medina, it is very important. Mm. Because I think you can only establish peace when you when you you know treat people fairly. And in the Charter yeah. of Medina, you know, uh, in that time in in the holy city of uh, Medina, Muslim Jews and Christians were living together. And yeah. in that in that charter specifically, the Holy Prophet ﷺ mentioned that um, you know everyone is equal in the eyes of God, and everyone has a right to be treated fairly. And I think that's a, that's a, the huge you know. Uh, that's a huge milestone uh, which Islam achieved in those days. And still it is relevant in today's society that if you have to establish the peace, you have to treat the people, uh, you know, with fairness, with kindness. And as you mentioned previously, then, you know, uh, distribution of wealth equally is very important as well. Yes, absolutely. And it just, you know, it's very uh, it's surprising that someone in 5th, 6th century Arabia was able to come up with this. And, uh, you know, to, to this day, we have uh, we have people who are, you know, who we, Muslims all around the world, they look to the Charter of Medina as, a, you know, to, uh, as a baseline for mm. human rights. And, you know, uh, one special thing is that, you know, these people, they... Uh, th this UN Charter of Human Rights is seen as a great milestone. This, uh, you know, uh, the uh, the uh, Thomas Aquinas's Charter of you know his his rights. They're seen as you know uh, some of the base, you know, the foremost and the first uh, charters of human rights in the world, right. uh, especially the Magna Carta. But right. if you look back, everything in the Charter of Human uh, uh, Charter of Rights of uh, in the Pact of Medina. Mm -hmm. is all of it is replicated in all of these uh, uh, human rights charters. So you have to, you know, ask yourself the question, mm -hmm. where did all of this, uh, the, where does the, where the West get this uh, from? Or is the West uh, uh, 
you know, true in its claim that they are the founders and the, you know, the uh, the actual, you know, um, advances of all of this uh, uh, questions of human rights with the, with the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment. That is a real question to ask uh, these days. Beautiful. So, and as that leads to us to the next question, mm. you know, in specifically in this scenario when Russia and Ukraine are fighting with each other, are yeah, there any yeah. specific Islamic injunction or principle that guide conflict, uh, you know, resolution and reconciliation to foster peace among individuals and communities? Yeah, that's a, no. It's a very uh, interesting uh, question that you asked, and it's very you know relevant in the today's uh, society because. Um, you know what we see in the the Russia Ukraine conflict is uh, that you know we have a uh, so called because we live in the West we see you know our, our, we only see the, the what the media is showing is that the Russia is is an aggressor and you know the people of Ukraine are bravely fighting against this big aggressor but if you look you know if you you have to look objectively and this is what the Holy Quran teaches the Holy Quran teaches that when two parties are fighting or right. when two parties are in disagreement then you have to act as a mediator and this uh, and and this upon this very teaching of the Holy Quran the um, the head of the Ahmadi Muslim community Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmad may Allah strengthen his hand is uh, that is what he has advised in the previous uh, you know the last peace conference that happened um, one or two months ago um, he said that you know Islamic countries need to uh, rather than you know arming with the one of the sides that you know advances their interests against a common enemy rather than do that make sure people everyone is sitting around the table make sure they are there is dialogue and they are talking they are speaking and they're talking things out mm -hmm. that is what the role of uh, islamic countries should should be mediation that is uh, how it should be i remember there was a conflict um uh, in 2014, or uh, I think that yeah, it was a 2014. Wow. It was Op Operation Protective uh, Edge by um, Israel against Gaza. Wow. Now you know, uh, and uh, you see, you saw the whole world aside taking sides. Most of the countries in the Middle East, the Arab world, they took sides with the besieged people of Gaza, and most of the Western world, they defended you know Israel's supposed right to defend itself, mm -hmm. which is questionable. However, with the point I'm trying to get at, the country of Egypt, uh -huh. Egypt invited both Isra uh, Israelis. And uh, representatives from the uh, government of Hamas in uh, in the Gaza Strip, and okay. they brought brought them both to Egypt, and they mediated between them. They actually uh, uh, acted as you know the middleman between them. They spoke to one side, and then they went to the other side. So this is what I'm trying to say: is that this is how is uh, Islamic countries should not be engaged in, in taking sides and arming one side over the other, so that the conflict is you know perpetual in its you know uh, in its warfare. They should act uh, uh, swiftly to end conflict and uh, so that there is dialogue. And this is exactly what should happen in Russia and Ukraine. Right. Beautiful. So, uh, Imam Anas, can you share any instances, you know, instance from Islamic history where the pursuit of justice led to successful, you know, peace building efforts or the, you know, resolution of conflicts? I think that, you know, in, uh, in Islam, in, uh, in Islamic history, uh, there, are, there are, you know, uh, there are wonderful examples that we should look at where that, you know, where Islamic leaders have uh, acted upon the teachings of Islam. Um, for example, if you look uh, in, you know, uh, in the conquest of Jerusalem by uh, Sultan Salahuddin Yubi, known as Saladin in the English tongue, right. what happened was that, you know, uh, 99, about, uh, about a century earlier than his conquest of Jerusalem, uh, the Christian, for the first crusaders, they came to Jerusalem and they massacred his, his uh, Muslim and Christian and, uh, you know, and the Jewish inhabitants. Right. 
They absolutely massacred them. There was bloodshed. Mm -hmm. So when Sultan Salahuddin Ayyubi, when he came to Jerusalem, there was great talk of him avenging, you know, uh, the Jerusalem, you know, avenging all the bloodshed. And, you know, the people of Jerusalem, they were terrified, the Christians that were living there, they were terrified that, you know, this uh, Muslim army is coming and they're going to destroy us. They're going to treat us in the same way that the Christian armies treated the Muslims by, uh, by killing everyone, rampaging through the whole city and destroying our holy sites. But that is not what he did. Mm -hmm. When he came, he told everyone in, this, in, the, in the city of Jerusalem that, uh, that the, there is no need to fear. I will not drop a single uh, drop of blood. There will be no blood spilled today. And in, in addition to that, the holy mosque, the in Al-Aqsa mosque, that was turned into stables, you know, where horses were kept. So what he did, instead of, you know, uh, making that, you know, a source of uh, anger for the Muslims, what he did, he was just cleaned the whole mosque with Persian rose water. And so what? And uh, he allowed all of those who wanted to leave the city to, uh, he allowed them safe passages to uh, Christian strongholds such as Edessa and Antioch, all, of, all the way up north. And, you know, this actually reminds me of the, you know, the uh, story of the Holy Prophet of Islam, uh, peace yeah. and blessings of Allah yeah. be upon him. When he came back from Medina, the conquest of Mecca, Mecca, right. the, the city where he was, you know, treated in such a despicable manner, where, where he was, you know, the, his whole life, people used to treat him in, in such, a, you know, after his uh, announcing his prophethood, when people used to treat him in the most despicable manner, he, when he came back with an army of 1,000, people were terrified. But what did he say to them when he came back? Do you know? He said, La alaykum al There is no charge upon you today. Beautiful. What a beautiful statement that is. Beautiful. Isn't it just? What a beautiful statement mm -hmm. that is. That the people of Mecca, uh, they, when, when they would have heard it, imagine what they would have felt. That this, and you know, imagine the effect it would have had on them. So this is, you know, this, these are the true teachings of Islam. These are the teachings of Islam that we need to embody within ourselves. And we need to, you know, show the world that these are, this is well, who we are. Islam is a very misunderstood religion because even some Muslims, we do not understand and we are not aware of the beautiful teachings that Islam embodies. So mm -hmm. that is why we have to live and breathe the, the, the teachings of the Holy Quran. We have to live and breathe the teachings of Islam so that we can A, become better Muslims and B, show the world the beauty of Islam itself. Beautiful, and that's very well put. And uh, a last question to you: How can Muslims, as individuals, you know, and and as a collective, you know, contribute to building a just and peaceful world based on Islamic values and teachings? Exactly this: that they should, uh, um, uh, you know, look at the holy what the Holy Quran teaches, what the example of the Holy Prophet of Islam, so may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is, and they should listen to the, you, you know, the uh, the Khalifa of the time, which is His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed may Allah stand in his hand. All who, who you know, they the state a, a message of you know justice, and justice is based upon not taking sides engaging in mediation mm -hmm. and showing uh, the the true the and going along the the, te the teachings of islam which is justice and fairness and equality in society and uh, you know and also should mention equity in society that is you know if someone needs uh, you know if there is a level playing field but not everyone is of the same caliber then mm -hmm. Uh, then giving an extra, you know, push or extra margin or extra, you know, uh, incentive to people who are who are less, uh, you know, able, and so that everyone can compete, not just on a level playing field, but in a fairer society. And that is how a Muslim should be. Beautiful, Anas. 
uh, Imam Alas, thank you so much for your time and I appreciate uh, that you come on this show. And please forgive us for very, any shortcoming. And once again, Anas, thank you so much uh, for coming. That, that's uh, a great pleasure for me to be here. Jazakumullah. Jazakumullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.